This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Open up your Bibles to James. We're in the book of James. I've been going through this series. We're on part eight, James 4. James 4, 13 to 17. Uh, James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, and he writes this book not because he's the half-brother of Jesus, because in the beginning he calls himself a servant of God. And you know, try to get your head around that, right? Jesus' half-brother, who grew up with him, somehow understood through the resurrection that Jesus is God. And so he calls himself a servant of God. And this passage here uh, will speak uh, to us today about what it means to live a practical Christianity. Today's scripture passage is found in the book of James, chapter 4, starting at verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Amen. Uh, Christianity, it's it's a hard thing uh, to understand. And all the more, it's a hard thing to live out. And if you consider yourself a believer, uh, you know that. You know that in the sense that you know that it's, it's, uh, it's by grace that you have been saved. But you also recognize that this transforming power often feels like it's far from us. And what you need to understand is that faith is at the heart level. right? It's not simply mental intellect or assent, agreement to who Jesus is. And what James is doing is he's helping us understand if you believe in your heart who God is, if you trust him, well, you should start to change how you live. And so he's actually what he's doing is he's connecting the dots. If you believe this, then your life should look like this. Because again, uh, faith is at the heart level. And sometimes we don't understand how it's supposed to impact us. So, so he's connecting the dots so that you would understand what this faith uh, really looks like. Uh, and because it's so challenging to really understand the faith and live it out, uh, you know, Christian, uh, Christians have been you know, called practical atheists. You know, you say you believe, but practically you live like an atheist. You Practically you live like there is no God. And so James, what he's doing is he's connecting the dots and giving us practical Christianity. If you believe this, then you live like this. And today, we're talking about something uh, so mundane, uh, something so ordinary, something that we all do, something that you just did, something that you'll do even afterwards. And you can uh, summarize it in four words. Uh, what are your plans? Uh, Pastor Shin and I, we did not coordinate that. Um, but that, that's the idea. Uh, we have plans for every little thing we do. You have plans for tomorrow. You have plans for the summer. And that's what he's talking about here in this passage. 
Uh, for you, you, when you ask somebody what are your plans for the summer, you already had an answer, right? That this summer you'll be doing dot, dot, dot. You know, for others of us, we have a plan for this week. You have a plan for tomorrow. You have a plan for what you do right after service. And uh, what James is doing is helping us understand how to approach everyday life. It's probably something you don't even think about. And that's how practical uh, his book is. He just helps you think through. If you believe in God, if you believe in Christ, this is what your faith should look like. He's, he's laying it out for us. And as we think about how to approach our days, how to plan with God in mind, uh, we all recognize, if you've, tried to do, if you've done this before, if you've attempted to live uh, and plan with God in mind, you've all recognized it's quite hard to do, isn't it? It's quite hard to do. Uh, so often, uh, we try, but we take our life back into our own hands. And that's the first thing that we want to look into. If we're supposed to live for God, if we believe in this God, why is it it's, it's so hard to let go? Why don't we want to let go uh, of our own everyday small aspects of life? So look with me in verse 13. Uh, keep your Bibles open as we'll go through this text. Why don't we want to let go? Verse 13, James calls them out, right? Come now, you who say, right? He doesn't literally know the people who may be saying this, but maybe he's seen this kind of life. So he's saying, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He's describing a person who has a plan. In this situation, it's someone who has a plan to make money. And we all do this. We all have a plan for something. When someone asks you, what are your plans for the summer, even if you said nothing, that is your plan. You have planned to not travel. And it's in this subtle understanding of how we approach everyday life, he speaks into it. The reason that this person is guilty it's not because he wants to make money. It's not because he wants to plan. You see it later on in verse 15. What's so wrong about this man's approach, this person's approach? In verse 15 it says, if the Lord wills. Right? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The reason he's found guilty, this person is found guilty it's not because he plans. It's not because he wants to make money even. It's that he does not include God in his everyday planning. For others of us, we have included God in these major decisions of who to marry or you know, where we want to, you know, uh, what kind of occupation, those kinds of aspects. But what he's talking about here is not just a macro of how we approach these big decisions, but everything. Because this person here, he's guilty of, one, uh, when uh, they want to go, 
guilty of where they want to go, guilty of how long they want, they want to go for, and they're guilty of, at the end, the end of the day, being confident that they will make money. It's a subtle approach to life that he is talking about, and so he, they're guilty of not understanding if the Lord wills in the everyday aspects of life. And it's not that, you know, James actually expects you to speak like this, right? The goal is not, you know, after service when someone asks you, hey, what's your plan for this summer, that you respond by saying, well, if the Lord wills, then I'll go, you know, to the U.S. If the Lord wills, then I'll go to Hawaii. If the Lord wills, then dot, dot, dot. That's not the end-all, be-all. Yes, you can say that. Yes, sometimes you probably will say that because you mean that. But that's not the goal. You see, something was evident in the way that they lived everyday life. That's what he's talking about. It's not that he expected them to live this way. It's that he saw it in their life that they did not include God in their everyday approach to life. And that's what they're guilty of. They're guilty in verse 16, and it clarifies they're guilty that they were boasting in their, what does it say? Arrogance. Isn't that an interesting statement? Uh, usually the way that we talk about boasting is, oh, this guy, he just talks all the talk about something, right? Oh, I'm the best at this. Right? He's got this, this, this way in which he approaches his workplace or maybe the sport. And so you think, oh, he's so proud in this, maybe his athletic ability. Maybe it's his knowledge. And what's, what's James talking about here? You're boasting in not a practice. You're boasting in your arrogance. And that's the issue. It's something that it's so hard for us to pinpoint. Where is there a disconnect in how I live and what I believe? Where is a disconnect? And what he is doing is basically asking us, pause, hold up. Some of you, the way that you think about your faith is, are these big things or these big sins that you don't do? And what he's, what he's uh, you know, addressing here is after service, how do you approach even that aspect of leaving here? What you plan to do after service, what, do you, what you plan to do this week, what you plan to do this summer. And he's getting at that underlying boasting of arrogance, what he is guilty of is self-reliance. A self-sufficient self-reliance. I can do this and I will plan to do this. I don't even regard, regard God in these, in these daily aspects of life. And he's saying that is the issue. Because again, he's not expecting people to say, well, after church, if God wills, I'm going to go to I Park and eat dinner. And if the Lord wills, right, that's not the whole goal. The whole goal is, can you learn to see life where you are a dependent, you are creation, and there is someone who is sovereign, and learn to see that. I think this is potentially the most subtle and pervasive message that you have heard throughout your whole life that, you have, that has uh, seeped into your own faith. It's so subtle, right? You know you shouldn't lust. 
right? You know you shouldn't be greedy, right? You know that you shouldn't be envious. You know you shouldn't gossip. And it's these, it's these bigger, you know, practices that we are aware of that we thought, oh, I shouldn't do that. When you fall into that, when you commit that, you feel guilty. But what he's addressing here is, how do you even think about your days, your subconscious and how it works? And that's what he's talking about. I think it's one of the, the most subtle but yet pervasive messages that you can do it. And it's all about you. It's a self-reliant message that you have heard over and over and over. How do we know this? Uh, you know one of the most uh, commonly played songs in a funeral? You know what it is? One of the most commonly played songs uh, in, in, on this one site, it was the number one song uh, played uh, in uh, funerals. It's uh, Frank Sinatra's uh, song, My Way. I know I'm speaking to a young crowd that's like, who is Frank Sinatra? And two, what is his song, My Way? But if you know the song, you uh, probably enjoyed this song. It's actually a, a great song that if you heard it, it's one of those old tunes that you'll want to uh, uh, you know, hum along to. Because it has this great, you know, um, just, I don't know, like feel of, of the song. And I'm not going to sing it for you. But what I actually want to do is actually go through this song. We're actually going to exegete uh, this song. And he says, and starts, and now the end is near. And so I faced a final curtain. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And listen to these words. And much more, and much more than this, I did it my way. Isn't it interesting that this is one of the top played songs in funerals? Second verse. Regrets. I've had a few, and then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. Now listen to these words. Are these not the words of James? I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway. And much and, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times, I, I'm sure you knew, when I bit off more than I could chew, and through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all, and these words, again, the arrogance. I stood tall. Even though I've messed up, I stood tall. I did it my way. I've loved, I've laughed, I've cried. I've had my fill, my share of losing. And now, as tears subside, I find it all so amusing to think I did, did, did all that. And may I say, not in a shy way, again, the boast. Oh, no, oh, no, not me. I didn't do it the shy way. I did it my way. And then this is the last verse. What is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. 
Yes, I did it my way. That's the song. And you know, I don't want you to go to a funeral and be judgmental, right? Uh, you should have compassion on any funeral that you go to and they sing a song like this. But taking a step back from that place, if we can kind of look at what's going on here, this song is blatantly about, I did it my way. And there's something that resonates to the human heart. There's a reason that's played in so many funerals. There's a reason when you think about that person and you think about he did it his way. There's something within us that actually can sympathize with that. In our flesh, we'd want to even commend that. And this is what James is talking about. It's this subtle, it's all about me and I can do it mentality. It's so insidious, right? You can't see it, but it's, it's there. And that's what he's talking about. Why is it the most played song in a funeral? It's because we love to boast. We love to boast about our accomplishments and what we did. And we see that person, we say, yeah, you did it. You did it your way. And that's what he's talking about. That's not the way to live. You are not the end-all judge. There is a way that you should live. There is someone that you should kneel your life to. That's why we don't want to let go. If you don't want to let go, you have to recognize why. It's because you are the God of your own heart. You want to chart your course, which is why we must let go. Why? Must we let go? We just talked about why we don't want to let go. Now, why must we? Now, he gives two reasons here of why you have to, even for common sense reasons, why you must and why you should let go. In verse 14, he says, Yet you do not know what's, uh, what tomorrow will bring. The whole idea, the argument's so uh, simple, it's so simple that's almost profound. He's saying, you plan for the year, you plan for years, you plan for this and this, and you're, you're so confident that you're going to make money. And he says, yet you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The first reason that he shows us why we have to let go of the planning is that we are limited in our ability. Tell your neighbor you are limited in your ability. <clears throat> You're limited in your ability. You can take a, take a wager and think, okay, this is what's going to happen tomorrow. Chances are it's probably going to happen like how you think. But if we were to get everyone's cacao ID today, and created a, I don't know how many people are here today, uh, you know, this, this, this gigantic room, and we ask, okay, tomorrow, message us when it the stops going according to plan. Do you think you'll, your phone's going to blow up with a whole bunch of cacao messages? Absolutely. And then you do that. How long do you think it'll take? How many days? Probably like halfway till tomorrow. You're like, okay, the, the, did not see that happening. And that's what he's talking about. You're so self-reliant, you're so arrogant, you boast 
about what you can do. You're so confident in these outcomes because in the past you've seen this happen. But common sense will tell you, you don't know everything of life. You are limited. Yes, you have some control, but you are limited. And because of that, what James is saying is understand your limits. That's all he's saying. He's not telling you to not plan. He's not telling you to think about money. If you're looking through the book of Proverbs, you understand it's actually very wise uh, to, to save, right? It's very wise to think about how you will actually have income. These are actually things that Proverbs actually, uh, you know, uh, highlights as good qualities, wisdom. But he is saying that you are limited. And so don't boast in your arrogance because if you do, you will found, you'll, be, you'll be found to be foolish, uh, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a well-known pastor from, uh, from the UK, uh, before he uh, pastored, he was, uh, he was a doctor, respected doctor. And he, uh, he talks about pride in this way, and he talks about it in the sense that, you know, we are just, it's just so easy for you and I to have this air of arrogance, right? Any good thing that we do, it just you know, we become bobbleheads, right? We're so proud of our achievements. And so he talks about the medical field in which he was a part of. And he says, you know, it's amazing. Like these doctors, they take so much pride in what they're able to accomplish with, you know, modern day science. You can have open heart surgery, keep someone alive, you know, uh, you know cut open uh, this portion of your body and actually, you know, have the surgical work done on the heart. He's like, that's amazing. And so because of these grand accomplishments in the past century, doctors think they're all that. And his one response to them is, if you've done all these great things, why can't you take care of the common things, like the common cold? Why can't you cure the common cold? Can't you recognize that we love to boast in our, in our accomplishments? I've done this and I've done that. And so slowly, what happens? You start to not even include God in your day-to-day planning. He's saying, you think about the year, but you don't know what's going to happen even tomorrow. You see, they're self-reliant. They're practical atheists. But the worst of all is they have made themselves God. That's why they're practical atheists. There's no regard of God because they think they can accomplish something. I've mentioned this before, but this is the reason that we as a generation, we struggle with so much anxiety because we have so much power available to us. You know, with a click of a button, right, we can watch any show. Like with a few uh, words typed, you know, on the computer, you can find any information. And so you don't even know what you don't know, because when you don't know it, it's so easy to access it. And so because we've been in this constant you know, feedback loop of getting everything that we want, if we want something tomorrow, what do we do? We go to Coupang, we get it by tomorrow, right? That's the world we live in. And, this, and the reason we struggle with so much anxiety today is the problem is not this. The problem is not that we're not in control. We think that's why we have anxiety. The reason we have anxiety is because we have believed the lie that we should be in control. Do you see the difference? 
So often when you get anxious, when something is, is, is unfolding, you don't know what, what's going to happen, and this worry, this anxiety kind of wells up within you. The reason you, you have this anxiety, at least the, way, the reason you think you have this anxiety, is because you don't, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but you think you should be in control. And what this passage is saying is that's the lie. You think you should be in control. It's your pride that fuels the worry. And I don't want to belittle anxiety. I think anxiety is multifaceted. But I do think this is one core aspect of why we struggle and why so much of us have anxiety. Why we, we can't, uh, why we can't let go when something uh, you know, happens that's not a part of the plan. Because for us, we've got things lined up. And in our minds, in our finite minds, we think this is how it should be. You see, anxiety is not caused by the circumstances outside. It's really a result of the pride within. We think we should be in control. We demand to be in control. And so when we are not in control, it's anxiety. It's worry. It's pointing our finger, saying to God, God, where are you? Because it's not, it's not going according to my plan. You see, he's saying, recognize that you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Be aware of your ability and, and, and how limited you are. But also, he goes on in verse 14, talking about the brevity of life. Not only do you not know what's going to happen tomorrow, if you can actually take a step back and understand, you are but a mist, right? Verse 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're gone. Right? You think about even someone like your grandparents or even your great-grandparents. Right? Someone that you're related to, how little you know them. Because what happens? At one point, sadly, they pass. And the idea is if you can take a step back and really recognize how, how minuscule you are in the grand scheme of life. He says, don't you know? Our life is limited. Talks about how if you can count the days, then you'll be considered wise. You recognize you're not invincible. Uh, James is probably getting this idea from uh, this parable that Jesus teaches in Luke 12. We actually went through it as a church uh, last fall. It's this rich man who was curious on what Jesus would say with this, uh, with this issue of inheritance. And so he goes... Uh, to Jesus, saying, Jesus, you know, settle this dispute of inheritance. And so, uh, at the, his, uh, his, basically, his end statement is, is this in verse 19, uh, in verse 13, <clears throat> where it says, uh, verse 19, sorry, verse 19, it says, So you have ample uh, goods laid up for many years, relax. And be merry. And then this is how God responds. You fool, for this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, uh, whose will they be? It's this man who was wealthy, and he did not understand the, the finite limits of his life. And so therefore, he's considered a fool. But when you look into this passage, you start to recognize why he was so foolish. Because everything around him told him 
that he is all that. And so in verse 16, when you go back, it says, The land of the rich man produced plentifully. He thought to himself, What shall I do? Notice these words. It's very similar to James. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this, and I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and therefore I will store up all my grain and my goods. It's that same idea. I will do this. I will go into this city, and around this time or that time, I will make this kind of money. The reason this man was so foolish is because he was in the occupation of agriculture, right? Where your crops are dependent on things way beyond your powers, right? If you are a farmer, you need the sun and you need rain. And it's very clear in verse 16, it says, the land of the rich man produced plentifully. Yet, because he's got the money, he believes, I will do this. I will build up you know, the storehouses. I will do this and I will do that. And it's to that person he has been fooled because he, see, he thinks he has power. You know who James is talking to? He's talking to those who have money. That's actually the target uh, audience. Uh, in this text and in, in, the, in the passage following, he's addressing those who have money. Now, I know for some of you, you're thinking, well, that's not me. I don't have much money. Chances are you're considered pretty wealthy compared to other parts of the world. Chances are you have enough money to be able to do what you want. But even if you don't, you know what's so scary? It's that you think you should. It's that you think you should have all this wealth. And so that's why you may even be bitter against God, because it's that boasting of pride. I demand this. I deserve this. You see, money has that deceptive power to have you think you are in control of your own life. And to James, and James, what he says is recognize how short it is and for this rich man this, in this parable, he was considered a fool because he did not regard God and how he even used his finances. At the end, he says, you weren't even rich toward God. You know, James, how does he know that these people were not living uh, with this idea of if the Lord wills? It's not because he was eavesdropping in their conversations. He knows it because of how they lived, how they spent their money, how they used their time which is a great indictment against us. And so, then, how do we let go? How do we let go? As, uh, you know, as Elsa said, how do you let go? This is what we want to learn. This is how we want to actually walk out of this building. And in verse 16, yes, you will see that when he says, if the Lord wills, verse 15, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Right? That's the mentality of it. What that already then assumes is you have recognized your, your, your limits, right? You've recognized even the brevity of life. If the Lord wills, we will live. And then do this or that. The call is to recognize God's will. To recognize God's, I would say, good will. Because what James is asking the people to do is submit to God's will. 
And I would say it this way, submitting to the will of God that is better. That's what James is asking you. Think about today, think about tomorrow. Things may go according to plan or things, or things may not go according to plan. And can you, in your heart, let go of your arrogance, humble yourself and say, if the Lord wills. If he doesn't, what is it? I will be okay with it. Because I want you to know how the will of God is described in, in, in Scripture. Romans 12 talks about the will of God in this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what? What is the will of God? What is good, acceptable, and perfect? You don't need to be a scholar to understand that God's will for us is good, acceptable, and perfect. That is how the will of God is described. Matthew 6, when the Lord teaches us uh, the basic prayer, the Lord's prayer, one aspect of it is praying this regularly. Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If this can be true of you, you will be resilient. Yes, you will struggle with some anxiety and some worries, yes. But at the end of the day, you'll be able to go to sleep. At the end of the day, you'll be able to let go of things that have happened to you. I was talking to a church member uh, about two to three years ago. He was having a really, really cha a challenged, challenging time in his workplace. He uh, told me about all that was going on. It seemed, you know, quite wrong. And so basically he was applying to be transferred to a different part of, uh, you know, of, you know, the organization. And, you know, he's a very bright guy. I, I didn't think he would have an issue of, of transferring by any means. And so, you know, I call him after he should have found out about what, what happened. And he told me he didn't get the position. And he was shocked. And so I, I talked to him and I asked him, you know, about what's going on and how he feels. And I was so surprised by how he responded. He says, yeah, it's hard. But he said to this, God is sovereign, right? I mean, we believe that, right? He said, I'm okay. And I believed it. I didn't think he was just saying some Christian words. There was something about his response that, you know, speaks to me today. Yes, he was disappointed, but he was so sure that it was God's providence. That's why he didn't get it. It wasn't a blow to his, you know, his identity, his value. It was, a, it was a knock on those things. He said, well, God didn't give it to me, so we believe God's sovereign, right? We believe he's in control. I'm okay. And that's what you can be like through all that happens. Your hopes that you have for tomorrow and this year, when it doesn't work out, yes, you'll be sad, but you can say, God's sovereign, right? I'll take that to the bank. I trust him. Uh, Jim Elliott uh, was a well-known uh, missionary um, and many of you know his story. He actually ended up giving his life uh, for, this, uh, for this people group. And near the end of his life, uh, you know, he died, I think, about seven years after college. So he was quite a young man. And uh, you know, in his letters, he, he wrote a lot about, you know, I may end up dying young. And he didn't know why, but he just kind of had the sense to be prepared to die. And, he's, uh, and to his uh, sister, who was married recently, he writes this in his letter. 
He says, I've been thinking lately that life uh, lately, that life in the will of God is better in each phase that we enter. So I can say honestly today, this, uh, this is the best year of my life. And then he prays for this couple. I'm praying uh, this for you both, that there will be a sense of climax, there will not be a sense of climax, and then a fading such as I have, I have observed in some young married couples. But rather at the full experience of life as it was meant to be lived from the beginning, uh, from the beginning for adults might uh, be an increasing thing. God delivered us from this lolling back, and, uh, lolling back and saying, I've had it. Instead, he says, we haven't had everything, only all we could take for our time being. He is saying, if we can understand that if we give all of our hearts, our lives to the will of God, what he's saying is, if you can do that, you can say that this is the best year of my life. And you give yourself to that. And to understand that there's seasons of God's will in your life, and for this season, to give God your all. And as you do that, you'll recognize what God is doing. Yes, your life may not look like other people's life, but when you give all of your heart to it, you start to realize what God is doing. And you can say, yes, it's painful, but it is good because his, his, uh, his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. And for this season... When you do that, you, he will give you all that you can handle. What's surprising is this language of if the Lord wills. It was actually quite common in Scripture. When you actually read Scripture from front to back, especially in the New Testament, you actually see people use this language. You see Paul use this language. But the one that I want to highlight most importantly is Christ himself. Him being God, him having no sinful nature, he uses this language, doesn't he? When he's in the garden and he thinks about what's going what's to happen as he goes to the cross, what does he say? God, take this cup away from me. I don't want to go through the suffering. He's a human being. Yes, God, but the pain is real. The, the nails were real. The, the wrath of God on him for our sins was real. And if that was me, I'd be like, I'm not taking the cup, period. But Jesus says what? If you will, I'll drink the cup. Lord, your will be done. How can you be so sure that his uh, will is good, pleasing, and perfect? We just sing it. God is for us so that through it we would be united to him. This was the plan from the beginning, Ephesians 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God and his planning had you in mind. Think about that. The infinite God, the creator God, 
had you in mind. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And then this verse, in love, he predestined us for, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Why is it that whatever happens today, you can say, I'll let it go, I'll trust the Lord? Because he thought of you. He's taking care of you. Though you don't know what's happening tomorrow, he does. And so it is the logical thing. Yes, it is a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice to your arrogance. It's the clear and logical better thing to do, to consider the Lord and his will in all your planning. And by doing that, you have less anxiety you have more gratitude. You can sleep at night because the Lord and His will is good, pleasing, and perfect. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.